Hi, podcast listeners. This is another chapter in the ongoing serialization of Fates Version Death Sunrise Hotel, a full-length novel that takes place in the Fates Version Death universe. We'll be doing one chapter every other week, uh, free on the podcast, or if you want to listen to or read the whole thing now, you can go to www.fatesworsendeath.com and buy the complete novel. When you buy the paper version of the novel, you'll get access to the complete audiobook that you can download in MP3 format. Fates vs. Death Sunrise Hotel contains some pretty heavy subject matter, including some sexual violence, so these podcasts are intended for mature listeners only. Fates vs. Death Sunrise Hotel, a novel by Brian St. Clair King. This story takes place in the world of Fates vs. Death, the role-playing game. Eight days after. Tina slept until midday, and then woke up feeling famished. Joe and Tabitha were there. She wrapped clothes around her feet and they went to a Chucky's Del Taco, where Tina bought them burritos. They sat and ate, and Tina told them the whole story of her capture and escape. She avoided telling them how close she had been to deciding to stay with the Lumens and be one of them. Next they went to a thrift store on Broadway. Tina was able to find a pair of scuffed black work boots that were a bit tight, but otherwise okay, a pair of dark gray jeans, a long-sleeved striped black and red shirt, and a vinyl windbreaker with pockets big enough for knives. In the dishes and silverware section, she found two steak knives that would be good as boot blades. She also found a wooden-handled kitchen knife that would work fairly well as a combat knife. Everything came to $23. After that, she had only $3 left from the wad the Skimborgs had given her. Joe and Tabitha decided to panhandle on Broadway. Tina borrowed Joe's key and went back to the room. She spent the next hour or so carefully cutting into the rubber sole of the boots, making a hole just big enough that she could slide in the knife blades from the kitchen knives, handles removed. Tucked deep into the rubber, they were fairly sturdy. Tina put her new knife and a knife from her stash under the bed in the pockets of her new windbreaker, padding the bottom of the pockets with strips of denim from her old jeans so they wouldn't cut through. Tina went to the bathroom to look at herself in her new outfit. Somehow, despite how beat up she felt, there were only a few scratches visible on her face. Tina wanted to go back to bed to spend the rest of the day resting, but she felt that enough time had been wasted. Sleeping all day wouldn't help her find out what had happened to Marisol. Tina went and found Joe panhandling. He had made a few bucks but was getting cold and was ready to stop. He told her it was about time for dinner at the mission. As Tina and Joe walked, a young man came up to them. He was Hispanic, with short spiky hair, wearing a see-through fishnet shirt and black leather pants. He was muscular, but in that weird, oddly proportioned way that made Tina think of muscle implants or steroids. He walked stiffly, staring at them with an expressionless face. He stopped before them and held out for Tina a piece of paper. Tina took it from his stiff, motionless hands. The handwritten note read, I wish to remain anonymous, but whether you know it or not, you once helped me through a rough time in my life. As a token of my appreciation, I have rendered you this sex golem for the evening. His brain is programmed with an artificial intelligence, programmed to follow any command you have, and capable of every sexual technique. I assure you that he is free from disease and is totally sterile. It was considerably expensive to procure this rental, so please don't squander it. Tina stifled a laugh as she went through the young man's pockets. He stayed perfectly still. The pockets were empty. She stuck her fingers in his shoes and found nothing there. Tina stood up. Take off your shoes and pants, Tina ordered. The young man complied quietly. She took the pants from him. The bulge in his underwear suggested that his dick was surgically enhanced as well. 
Now stand right there and don't move, Tina said. Dumbass, Tina said to Joe as they walked away. You don't believe, Joe said. No way, it's just another fucking perv. Why are they always attracted to me, huh? How come every weirdo with some crazy sex fantasy zeroes in on me as the person they want to live that fantasy out with, huh? Joe didn't answer. They actually have those things, you know, sex golems. Rich people buy them on the black market. It's even legal, so long as they're vat-grown. They must be pretty fucking expensive, or else all the whores in the city would be out of a job. I don't know, Joe said. I think most Johns would prefer a real person. If they just wanted to get their rocks off, they'd masturbate, or go put some quarters in a porn shop VR machine. Yeah, I suppose, Tina said glumly. They all either want to save you or humiliate you. They want their dick to be the center of someone else's life for a change. They don't realize they're nothing to us, just another random John. Joe glanced back. Shit, he's following us. Tina and Joe stopped and the barefoot, pantsless man walked up to them. I am programmed to go to you and provide you with pleasure, the man said in a monotone voice. Listen, Tina said, I'm a lesbo, okay? The only use I would have for your dick is to hang my coat from. Now go away, and if I see you again, I'll start cutting your parts off. I cannot permit you to damage my owner's property, the man droned. Then go then, you dumbass, Tina said angrily. They watched the man walk away stiffly, and then they continued on their way. I don't meet many guys who want to humiliate me, Joe mused. Well, that's because you're a guy. Guys assume other guys are into it, but they assume that women aren't. Joe didn't answer that. They walked until they found a young man hanging out on a street corner, leaning against a brick wall with one foot up against it. One young man was hanging out nearby, watching. They were obviously pushers. Joe haggled with the pusher and ended up getting the pusher to agree to trade the pants and shoes for a 100 milligram guide killer rock. The pusher made a gesture to one of his friends, who walked up to Joe and quickly slipped something into Joe's hand. Tina and Joe went in the alley and inspected it. A small Ziploc plastic bag with a tiny god killer rock in it. Joe had a lighter and a small glass pipe in his pocket, and they were each able to get about one puff from the rock. It was a pleasant high, but it left them wanting more. They ignored the urge to get more and continued on to dinner. They were high enough that they didn't feel hungry, but they were lucid enough to know that they had to eat. They laughed imperiously at the scoopful of beans and sauce that the volunteer gave them. She gave them dirty looks, but they were still buzzed enough not to care. They started to come down from the god killer high in the middle of dinner. They both felt anxious, tired, and depressed. When they were done, Tina wanted Joe to go with her to the hospital. Joe said he needed to lie down for just a few minutes, and then would go with her. They went back to the hotel, and Joe went upstairs, while Tina went to the hotel's first floor and started knocking on doors. There were a few doors where nobody answered. In many rooms, the person in the room asked, through the door, who Tina was. Tina explained she was a resident of the hotel, and that she wanted to ask about a friend who had gone missing. Most people said they didn't know anything and didn't want to talk to her. After the fifth door, someone opened up. It was a black guy in his thirties or forties. His hair was short with a zigzag pattern shaved into the sides. He had a small golden stud in each ear and wore a fluffy powder blue dressing gown. Tina asked if she could come in and talk to him. He invited her in. He sat down on a folding chair by the window, his legs splayed and his shoulders thrown back. He seemed confident and unafraid, unlike most of the other hotel residents who acted like they thought Tina might attack them at any moment. As she spoke, he gave her an appraising stare. She explained about Maricel's disappearance, that an ambulance had been at the hotel, although she did not know if it had loaded a passenger or not. He didn't remember hearing or seeing the ambulance, and didn't remember anything odd happening that night. She asked if he could remember anyone strange hanging around the hotel, and he said he couldn't. Tina described Maricel to him, and he said he knew her, and had spoken with her a few times, but not in the last few weeks. Tina was getting ready to leave when he said, Hey, you're a good-looking girl. If you ever need to make some money, I have some contacts from back when I was working. Working? Oh, yeah, he said proudly. I used to be a pimp, a damn good one, but I had to quit when the sexologist started beating people up. A real pimp? Yeah, I used to have a stable of 15 girls working for me. I would take in 500 a day on some days. 
That's a lot of money. Well, you know, more money you have, the faster it goes away. You ever work the streets? No, Tina lied. Yeah, I used to have this kick-ass ride. It was a restored 34 Amsterdam, gasoline-powered. You have no idea how much it cost to buy gasoline to drive around a car like that. I wore imported silk suits. I used to have style, you know. That's the problem nowadays. Nobody has any fucking style. Everyone thinks it's cool to be a dirty little street rat, to wear Salvation Army clothes and fight with a rusty knife. They think it makes them tough or something. How old are you, sweetie? Eighteen, Tina lied. Because you could make some serious money. I thought you were out of the pimping business. The sexologists and all that. Hell, the sexologists can't do shit about what they don't know about. You just gotta stay private. I'm not in that business anymore, you understand. But I still know people. I could make some calls. No, thanks, Tina said. Tina excused herself and went out into the hallway. She was about to go up the stairs, see if Joe was awake, when she saw Manny come in. He had a black eye, a swollen nose, and a big lump on his chin. He gave her a big, long hug, seeming genuinely happy that she was okay. What happened? Where were you? he asked. Tina explained about being kidnapped by Lumens and having to escape. Tina asked what had happened to Manny, but all he would say was that he had been beaten up. Look, Tina, is Joe upstairs? Yeah, he is, Tina said. Oh, he said disappointed. Then, I should go. You're kidding, right? If I go up there, Joe's just going to want to know where I've been and what I've been doing, and I just can't deal with that shit right now, you know? I really need to get some sleep, Tina, he thought. Look, can I tell you where I'm staying, and when Joe leaves, you could come get me, and I can go up to the room and get some sleep? Um, Tina said. She didn't want to get involved, but she couldn't bring herself to tell Manny no. She worried that if she said no, she might never see Manny again, and she couldn't afford to lose another friend. Okay, sure. He took her to a vacant lot a few blocks away where a bunch of homeless people were hanging out. Torn and stained chairs and couches had been drug here, and there were some fire pits dug into the cracked asphalt that were brimming with black ash. Tina had heard places like this called lounges. They were a public area where homeless people, mostly winos, came to hang out, socialize, and relax. The fact that it was an open lot made it hard for anyone to ambush them. A few people greeted Manny, calling him Florice. Tina promised she would come get Manny when Joe was done with his nap. Tina went back to the hotel and raised Joe. Joe was grumpy and said he needed to take a shower before he went to the hospital with her. The shower seemed to take abnormally long. Tina got tired of waiting and shouted through the bathroom door that she was going to walk to Drake Turf and be back soon, and that he should wait for her. She figured it had been about a week since Althea, the cute Drake girl, had sold her the blood poison subscription, so she was due another dose. Tina had lost the slip of paper that Althea had written her address on, but she thought she could remember the directions. Tina found the place she thought it was. It was a red brick building, four stories high, above an empty shell that might have once been a restaurant. The entrance was a door next to the empty windows of the restaurant, unlabeled except for an old plastic street number. Tina knocked and a little old woman with features a bit like Althea's answered. Behind her, Althea could see a flight of stairs. The stairs were lit only by natural light coming from a small transom window over the door. Tina asked for Althea, and had to explain she was a customer. The woman answered in a thick accent Tina couldn't place, explaining where Althea could probably be found. Tina walked over to a lot. There was a barbed wire fence around the whole thing, which had been studiously covered with plastic tarps, newspapers, and oily rags so that Tina couldn't see in at all. When Tina walked around the fence looking for an entrance, a young Drake girl of about ten asked Tina what she wanted. The girl called for Althea, and Althea popped out from a tarp, which had been covering a hole in the fence. Tina, she said with a tone of pleasant surprise. She had thick leather gloves on and was sweaty. Sorry to bother you, Tina said, suddenly embarrassed. I can see that you're working. Althea wiped her forehead with the back of her forearm. No problem, I was just working in the fields. It seemed fairly cold out to Tina, but Althea had a sheen of sweat. Oh yeah? Is that where you grow all your poison stuff? Some of it grows there, smiled Althea, coming closer. Some of it we grow indoors. 
Other stuff we make from insects or stolen industrial chemicals. It's all a big secret, of course. We can't let other people know how we make the poisons, or every homeless person will be doing it. She knelt down, taking off her left glove with her right hand. Then she stepped on the fingers of her right glove and pulled that hand free. She kicked the gloves over to the fence. I'm going to get some water. You want to come? Tina followed her back towards her house. Althea asked if Tina had found out what happened to Marisol. Tina said she hadn't. Althea asked about the scratches on Tina's face. Tina explained about being kidnapped by Lumens and escaping. Wow, Althea said. That is impressive. You're really brave. Tina blushed. Althea was curious about the types of weeds that Tina had pulled out of the Lumens' garden, but Tina couldn't describe them well enough. So you ready for another dose of blood poison? Althea asked as they went through the front door Tina had knocked at earlier. It was apparently unlocked. They went up a flight of stairs. At the top, Tina expected to see the same basic type of apartment building she had been in dozens of times, a hallway with doors leading to many different apartments. Instead, she saw the remnants of walls that had been hacked away, leaving a large open space that stretched from one side of the building to the other. The only light inside was natural light coming from the windows, but it was plenty. There were several stained and patched couches and chairs, and old wooden tables with unlit candles on them. Other miscellaneous things cluttered the space. Burlap sacks, jackets hung on pegs, old paperback books sitting in piles. It was messy, but at the same time felt homey. The little old lady was sitting in a big stuffed easy chair, working on some sewing. She said something to Althea in another language that made Althea stop. Oh, jeez, Nana, Althea complained. I didn't touch anything except with my gloves, I swear. The woman replied, and Althea gave up. Can you wait here for a minute, Tina? I've got to go out back and change. My grandma's worried I might attract something in on my clothes. Tina and the grandmother left, leaving Tina alone in the house. Tina looked around. The window holes had been covered with white plastic garbage bags that glowed with diffuse light from the daylight. The walls had peeling paint. There were a number of couches ranged roughly in a circle. What she had initially taken for tables were, under closer inspection, mostly crates or old spools. The candles had dripped down, making incredibly detailed little mountains of wax. Some of the candles were the little brown kind like Tina had seen in churches, and she wondered if the family stole them from churches. Tina sat down on a couch. The moment she sat down, she wondered if she had done something really stupid. Who was to say the place wasn't loaded with traps? If she was a drake, and immune to certain poisons, she would probably poison tons of little needles and pieces of glass, and hide them all over the place. There hadn't been any traps in the couch, though, not that she had sat on. Tina tried not to move, just in case. The couch was musty and smelled like some herb. Tina didn't know the name, but she remembered it from her youth. Remembered that someone had sewn it into a pillow for her mom. Something they said was to help her sleep. It was something someone had given her mom when she got sick. It was a nice place, Tina thought. It was warm enough that, with a sweater and maybe a hat, one could be fairly comfortable. It was clean. It was roomy. Even the couch was comfortable. Tina thought briefly that it wasn't fair that they would have such a nice place for free, while Tina had to pay money to live in a cramped, smelly little hotel room with a shared bathroom. That thought got Tina wondering about what the family here used as a toilet, but her thoughts were interrupted when Althea returned. Althea was barefoot, wearing jeans and an old striped men's sweater. She sat down on a couch across from Tina and put her feet up on an old spool. Um, Tina said embarrassed. There's no traps here, are there? Not in this room, Althea laughed. This is where we have guests. Oh, okay, just checking. No, it's cool that you're cautious. You gotta be when you're dealing with poisons, or someday you'll make some stupid mistake and you're dead. That's why I had to change my clothes, because you can't be too careful. So, you lost your poisoned knife when the lumens grabbed you? It wasn't the one with the blood poison. It was another one I had with some Drake fungus poison on it. Oh, yeah? I'm sort of a collector, you see. I've got... Well, I had that one with the fungus poison. I've got the blood poison, but I didn't put it on any knife yet, because of the smell. Althea wrinkled her nose in mock disgust, making Tina laugh. Tina continued. I've got this one with some stuff a black market trader sold me. 
Althea frowned slightly at this, that she said it would make a person's muscles cramp up and paralyze them instantly, and I've got one with some of that pain stuff that you guys sell. I've heard a lot of stories about the poisons that black market traders sell, Althea counseled, and if it's a matter of life and death, you should use a Drake poison, because you can never be totally sure what a black market poison will do until you use it. And if it's not a life or death situation, well, you shouldn't be messing with poisons, then should you? And it's funny you call yourself a collector. Why? When we call someone a collector, it means someone who likes having poisons and likes knowing they could use them someday, but will never actually use them. It's too bad you didn't have one of your poison knives with you when you took on those lumens, because then I could say I know a non-drake who actually used poison in self-defense. But I have. A few weeks ago I was in this building on the Columbia campus, and these guys attacked me. I hit one with a poison knife and he started puking. It helped me get away. I don't know if he died or not. Wow, Tina, you have all kinds of adventures. You're like... Danger Girl. I don't go looking for trouble, not usually. I just have bad luck. Althea pursed her lips thoughtfully, then said, You know, most people buy poisons from us, and then you never hear from them again. That's more or less the way we like it. We don't want to hear if you've done something bad, or if you're planning on doing something bad with one of our poisons, because that puts us in the position of having to decide whether or not that's okay, you know? But don't you assume that a lot of people are going to kill other people with your poisons? Like I said, a lot of people are just collectors. A lot more people use poisons as a threat. You know, don't mess with me, I've got a poison knife. Or, don't be mean to me or I'll poison your food. Like that. A lot of people buy our poisons to kill themselves. And I can't say that's always a bad thing. You know, if they're sick or have mental health problems they can't cure. My dad once sold a poison to a guy who said he was a serial killer and needed to kill himself so he wouldn't keep hurting people. And some people do buy poisons for premeditated murder. But I can't say that's always a bad thing either. Althea bit her lip and looked down at the floor, seeming deep in thought. Then she looked up, her eyes flashing bright. She stood and started pacing as she spoke, making arm gestures to punctuate her words. Look, if you sold clubs, you'd be helping strong people beat up weaker people. And if you sold guns, you'd be helping rich people who can afford guns kill poorer people. But the poisons we sell, anyone can afford them, anyone can use them. You don't have to be especially strong or especially clever. You just have to really want to kill someone. Most people kill for all the wrong reasons, and it's a terrible tragedy. But every once in a while, someone will kill for the right reasons. Now, if we stopped selling poisons today, people would keep murdering people. But because we sell poisons, maybe we make things a little more equal on the streets. Maybe there's someone who says, Well, I'm stronger, and I can beat someone up, but maybe I shouldn't because they might poison me. That sounds like the same deterrence arguments that gang members always use, Tina said. They say, We go lynch people that fucked with us, but we're actually reducing violence through deterrence. Except if that's true, why are gang members always at war? Seems like their lives are nothing but violence. Althea smiled. Well, the gang members I know, that's not exactly true. You have a point, though. Violence often causes more violence. But maybe the city is better than it could be. Look at the drug lords. If they had their way, the entire city would be their slaves. I'm sure they would like nothing more than to march down each block with armed soldiers and make every adult and child use their drugs. But they don't do that because they know too many people would fight back. They know too many people would rather die than be slaves, and too many of those people have weapons they can fight back with. Thanks to you, Tina grinned. Well, in part, yeah. I have a theory about poisons, Althea said. Like, about their history and stuff. I want to hear it, Tina said. Well, it's like this. Way back when you had kings. It wasn't like the fairy tales where they were all fair and just. Most of them became kings and stayed kings by being assholes. The knights were just paid thugs, and they pretty much enslaved the entire population of their kingdoms. That's what feudalism was. It was just slavery. Althea continued. So there were these old women who knew how to use herbs and stuff for healing, like the black meds do. And they knew about poisons because a lot of medicines, at a higher dose, are poisonous. 
they know how to slip something in your food that can kill you. And the kings hate that, because their personal servants are the friends and relatives of the people they rape and murder. Then they hear about this religion, Christianity. And they don't care about all the peace and love stuff. They know they can ignore that. But they do like the part where they say nobody can practice witchcraft or you kill them. But witchcraft is different from herbs, right? Tina asked. To us it is, but to them it wasn't. They didn't know all the science that makes herbs work. To them it was all magic. So the kings jump all over this shit. They adopt Christianity and start killing all the old ladies because they don't want to be poisoned. And that's why this whole burning witches, magic is sinful thing became so powerful. It's because when you want to concentrate power in the hands of just a few people, and you want to rule by force and fear, you can't have people who know poisons. Tina thought about it. Makes sense to me. So, if you heard about some innocent person, like some nice old lady who got poisoned by your schizo son, using Drake poisons, would you feel bad about it? I'd feel bad if I heard about a nice old lady getting murdered, but I wouldn't feel responsible, because there's probably another person who didn't get killed because they were able to use poison as a threat. Althea looked to the side for a second, then back to Tina, saying, with a pleased tone, Sometimes what people have the ability to do is more important than what they really do. She laughed. What? said Tina, unsure why Althea was laughing. Oh, nothing. It's just, I don't say a lot of stuff that's deep, you know? But that was pretty deep, right? Say it again, Tina said, staring into Althea's brownish-green eyes. Sometimes what people have the ability to do is more important than what they actually do. Tina's heart was beating quickly. She felt nervous and embarrassed. Her face felt hot. Hey, Tina? Althea asked in a lower voice, almost a whisper. Yeah? Are you, like, into girls? Sometimes, yeah, Tina answered with a smile. Why, are you? I am, yeah. Well, why do you ask? questioned Tina. I just had this sudden urge to kiss you. Tina felt lightheaded. She didn't know what to say. Of course, Althea said, averting her eyes. I couldn't actually do that. I have enough poisons in my saliva that a lip kiss would make you sick, and a tongue kiss would probably kill you. Well, couldn't we... Tina started to say, but couldn't end the sentence. I'm afraid any prolonged skin-to-skin contact would probably be dangerous. I, um... She scooted towards the end of the couch. I probably shouldn't be sitting so close to you. Don't want to poison you with my breath. Well, isn't there anything we can do? Well, if we had full body suits like the purists have, or if we could meet in VR, that wouldn't expose you to any toxins. But that would be expensive. The only other option would be to start giving you poison, get you an immunity. But that would take months, and I'd only be allowed to do it if I was completely sure you were, you know, the one. Tina stifled an embarrassed giggle. Her cheeks felt hot, and she knew she was flushed all over. I don't know if I'm ready to be the one for anybody no matter how hot they are. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I don't know how I'm going to be living next month. I wasn't proposing or anything. Well, Althea said with a soft voice, just letting you know the rules. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, thanks. They toned their conversation down after that, mostly discussing poisons, their effects, and optimum strategies for using them in combat. Tina let the conversation go on for a few minutes, then told Althea that she had to leave soon. Althea got a new packet of blood poison and gave it to Tina. Tina said goodbye and left. As she walked away, Tina touched her face with her fingertips, feeling its heat. Tina didn't know what time it was, but by the light it seemed like it might be afternoon. Tina stopped by the vacant lot where Manny was sitting on an old couch by an open fire. She told them she was going to take Joe with her to visit the ambulance bay at the hospital, and that they would be gone a few hours. Manny thanked her profusely and gave her a hug. He smelled like he needed a bath. Joe was waiting back at the hotel, and they walked to the subway together. As they walked, Joe, unprompted, confessed to Tina that he was worried about Manny, and thought that Manny was cheating on him. Tina didn't say anything. They squeezed together into the subway. Joe shared a few tiny, airline-sized bottles of liquor with Tina. On the train, the alcohol helped Tina find the courage to tell Joe about flirting with Althea without blushing too much. Joe noticed Tina's embarrassment and decided to make fun of her. 
As they waited for their stop, Joe said things like, You guys could put on surgical gloves and finger each other's clits. And, Are you still thinking about going down on Poison Snatch? You want me to call the suicide hotline? Tina smiled and forced herself to laugh at his little jokes. She knew his humor tended towards the cruel, but he didn't mean to hurt her feelings, only embarrass her a little. Tina was cold and she moved closer to Joe. She put her head on his shoulder and drifted into semi-sleep. Come on, little dyke, Joe said, nudging her. Tina opened her eyes and adjusted her crooked glasses. The subway was slowing for their stop. There was an empty ambulance in the back of the hospital, and they waited outside for someone to come back. After a few minutes, the blue boy and the Hispanic woman came out. The blue boy waved to Tina as he opened the ambulance. Hey, how's it going? he asked in a friendly voice. Is, um... She checked the piece of paper he had given her. Andreas working tonight? Yeah, his shift was over a few minutes ago, but he's stuck out there on an IB, intoxicated and belligerent. He'll be back eventually. He got into the ambulance. Well, we're heading out. Good luck on your thing. They waited several more minutes and the ambulance pulled up. Two men came out. One was male, overweight, middle-aged, with spiky blonde hair. He had a gauze pad partially covering a large, fresh scrape on his cheek. The other was a man in his early 20s with brown skin and Asian eyes. He had scruffy, curly hair and shiny black armor peeked out from the cuffs and collar of his uniform. Andreas? Tina asked. Yeah? said the middle-aged man in a slight northern European accent. He and the other driver headed around and back and pulled an old, unconscious homeless person out of the ambulance. Can I talk to you for a minute? About a call you might have gone to in the Bowery about a week ago? I can take him in, said the black Asian man, referring to the unconscious homeless person. Yeah, Andreas said. Andreas walked up to the two of them and surveyed them. You see, Tina said, my friend went missing, and I don't know where she went, but someone said an ambulance came by our place, and there was some blood. I had the DNA looked at, and we think it was a white guy who got stabbed. She counted on her fingers. It was... I think it was seven days ago, in the evening, maybe around 10 p.m., at the Sunrise Hotel in the Bowery on Stanton Street? Yeah, I remember that. I was on that call. It was a middle-aged guy, white, dressed like an indie, got stabbed in the gut. He was out on the street when I got there, but there was a blood trail leading back into the hotel. Was there anyone there with him? Tina asked. No, he was alone. Do you remember his name? Yeah, um, something Monroe. A wave of shock hit Tina. Her breath caught. That's... Did, did his ID say that? Or was that just the name he gave you? Yeah, he had ID at everything. Had any medical insurance, too. Did he live? He was doing okay when I brought him in. He probably stayed in the OR long enough for them to stabilize him for transport to a private hospital. Do you know who called it in? No. Was there anything... Her mind was a blank. Anything... Was he holding anything? Or did he say anything to you? No, not that I remember. He was in shock, had lost a lot of blood. We got him stabilized, though. He might have said he was stabbed, but that was pretty obvious. Tina couldn't think of anything to say, so she let Andreas go. I don't get it, Joe said. Is that Marisol's last name? Monroe? No, it's mine, Tina said. And if his ID said Monroe, it must have been my dad. Suddenly, Tina took off in a run. Joe ran after her. Tina ran around to the ER entrance of the hospital. She got into line to talk to the nurse behind the safety window. Joe stood next to her. Your dad? He asked, but why? I don't know, Tina said, her arms crossed across her chest, hugging herself. When Tina got to the window, she gave the nurse her father's name and asked if he was still alive. She looked up something on the computer and said that he had been transferred to an out-of-town hospital four days ago, which probably meant he was stable. Tina thanked the woman. Tina ran out of the hospital into a payphone bolted to the wall under a greenish glow at the emergency room sign. Tina got out changed for a call. She paused, staring at the blank screen of the phone, seeing herself and Joe reflected dimly back. She turned to him. I can't do this. Do what? Call home. I have to call home. I have to find out what happened, but... Will you call for me? 
What, me? No way. I wouldn't know what to say. They probably wouldn't talk to me anyway. Shit, Tina said, making a fist with her left hand and biting her pointer finger. Okay, I'm just going to do it, okay? Yeah, yeah, Joe encouraged. Tina put in the coins and entered her home phone address. She waited nervously as the screen read, Connecting, and Waiting for Reply. Tina suddenly realized that she had to urinate badly. She sifted her weight on her feet, hoping nobody would answer. Then the screen blinked on. It was her aunt, looking tired and bleary with her hair a mess. She had obviously just woken up to answer the phone. She looked at Tina for a minute, uncomprehending. Then realization seemed to dawn on her. Then came anger. You! she hissed. Aunt Tansy, Tina begged. I need to know what's going on. What's going on? I can't believe this. I can't believe you. Calling more than a week after you stabbed him? Did you come to say sorry? She demanded. What? Tina said. What? I, I didn't. I swear. Is my dad there? No, he's still in the hospital. You punctured his intestines, lacerated his liver. He came this close to bleeding to death. Did he tell you I attacked him? Tansy? She glared through the dirty screen at Tina. That's exactly what he told me, and you know it. Wait. Tina said, tears of frustration forming in her eyes. Please, I, I need you to talk to me. What, what did he tell you? She huffed and glared before responding. He said he came to get you to bring you home, and you didn't want to go, and he tried to drag you out, and you tried to kill him. But it wasn't me, Tansy. I wasn't even there. You horrible, she sputtered. You little whore. You monster. He should have told the police you stabbed him. He should have had you arrested, put in prison. It wasn't me, please, I swear. It must have been my roommate, who kind of looks like me. You don't expect me to believe that, do you? Tansy, please, Tansy, it was my friend, and she's missing. I don't know what happened to her. I didn't even know my dad had been there. She must have stabbed him, and... Did he say where she went? Where I went? After he got stabbed? She glared at Tina. Please, Tansy, I need to know. What did he say? He said you dragged him out on the street and left him. Left him there to bleed to death on the sidewalk. Only someone must have called an ambulance because one came. He thinks it might have been you called an ambulance, but I don't believe it for a moment, because you're a worthless little tramp. You run away from your family when they need you most. You stab your father when he tries to bring you home. You leave him to die. Is my dad going to be okay? Yeah, he'll be okay, she said. Then she looked at something off screen and looked back with venom in her eyes. Your father wouldn't tell the police anything, but I will. I'm going to tell them where you live and what you did to your father, and they'll come and put you in a cage where you belong. But I didn't do it, pleaded Tina. I don't want to hear it, Tina's aunt said angrily, and the screen shut off. Oh, shit, Joe said. Oh, shit, agreed Tina, gripping the side of the payphone to keep steady. They were silent as they walked over to a little convenience store and bought a pack of cigarettes and two cans of beer. They walked slowly back to the subway station and talked. It makes sense, I guess, Tina said. Marisol and I kind of look a lot alike. With the different haircuts and the piercings, I do look a lot different now than I did back at home. Maybe he thought she was me. He came to get me back, and she probably said, I'm not your daughter, which he thought was just me being... Well, that does sort of sound like something I would say to my dad. And when she refused to go with him, he tried to grab her, and she got scared because some stranger was trying to grab her, so she stabbed him. But then she didn't want him to die, so she drug him out onto the street and called an ambulance. Then what? Joe asked. Where is she? I don't know. I don't get it. I think it was her asking at that hotel, the Clifton. She was trying to find another hotel to live at. She asked about multiple people living there, so she was going to take us with her. She must have been afraid the police would come looking for her at the sunrise. But then something happened. I don't know, maybe some random murderer grabbed her on the way back? Maybe she left town, Joe said. Who knows? Maybe she even went home. But why wouldn't she tell us she was going? 
Maybe she figured out it was your dad, Joe said. She thought you might be mad at her for stabbing him, so she's too scared to come back. That's stupid, Tina said. How could she be scared of me? She was like my best friend. Well, you do get a little scary sometimes, Joe said. You're kind of angry sometimes. We're all angry, Joe. Not just me, because our lives have been shit, and we're pissed off about it. Come on, she pleaded. It's not just me. Yeah, but you're the one who's always playing with poison knives. Just before Marisol disappeared, when we did a bunch of godkiller, you threatened to stab her, remember? Yeah, but that was the drugs. I did way too much godkiller, and I told Marisol I'd never use godkiller again. You don't really think she ran off because she was scared of me, do you? Joe didn't answer. Well, you're not scared of me, are you? No, not really. Except I guess I'm scared you might try to kill Tabitha. Tabitha's a fucking bitch who tried to have me raped and killed, Tina exclaimed loudly. I should fucking kill her before she kills me. See, Tina, that's what I'm talking about. What, getting mad because someone tried to kill me? Does that make me a psycho bitch? Should I say, oh, it's okay that you sent me into the hangout of a rape gang. I don't want to be scary, so I'll just let it slide. You're so fucking paranoid, Tina, Joe said. You make people hate you, and then you're like, see, they were out to get me the whole time. Tina turned without a word and walked away. Come on, Tina, Joe shouted after her. Don't be a baby, but she ignored him. The sun was going down as Tina walked to the subway stop. Tina waited and squeezed in with someone. She waited at the end of the platform, near the gaping black hole of the tunnel. When the train came and the door slid open, she was the only one to step onto the train car. There was an old white lady and two sleeping homeless people on the train. At the next stop, four young women got on the train. They were teenagers, had weapons, had dark circles around their eyes like they were using something, and hadn't been sleeping much. Tina watched the reflection in the window of the train. They glanced at each other, communicating by body language, and nonchalantly moved into position behind the old lady. Two sat in the seat directly behind her, and two stood nearby. The two behind the old lady whispered to each other. Tina figured there was about to be a mugging. A group like this, they would probably just smash her in the face, rifle through her pockets, and leave at the next stop. Tina noticed the old woman was staring into space, oblivious. Actually, she looked too oblivious. Nobody just sits there staring, Tina thought. Tina figured the old lady probably sensed something bad was about to happen, but didn't want to let on for fear of spurring on the attack. Tina wondered what she could do. She didn't want to sit and let that old lady get attacked, but she didn't want to make the girls attack her. Tina wondered if there was something she could say that might scare the girls off. Grandma, Tina said exasperatedly to the old woman. I told you if you want to talk to me, just talk to me. Don't do that psychic shit. I fucking hate that. I fucking hate it when you put words in my head. The old woman stared at Tina, her face blank. The four girls looked on cautiously. Psychics, real ones, not crazy people or con men who said they were psychics, were a rare thing in the city, and most people were afraid of them. Stop it, Tina said. Jesus Christ, have some respect for my rights. The old woman seemed to catch on. Don't take the Lord's name in vain, she said slowly. Ow, Tina said, holding her head. Sorry, I'm sorry. The automated voice announced a stop, and the car started to decelerate. Tina got up. Come on, Grandma, this is our stop. The old lady paused, then got up, too. The fourteen girls watched as Tina and the old lady left the car. After the train left, Tina and the old lady stood in the empty subway station. The old lady looked at Tina expectantly. Um, those other girls, Tina said, they looked like they were getting ready to mug you or something. I know, she said solemnly in a tired voice. Thank you. I don't know what I would have done if you hadn't intervened. They waited for the next train and talked. Tina told the old woman her name, that she had run away from home, and was living in a little single-room occupancy hotel in the Bowery. The old woman frowned at that. The old lady asked Tina how she got by. By panhandling, doing odd jobs, and just scrounging up money any other way I can. Tina asked the old woman, whose name was Mara, what she was doing in the subway. 
Mar explained that she volunteered two nights a week in a hospice in Harlem and had just gotten off her shift. They keep telling me, you should get someone to go with you, Mara. You shouldn't be alone at any time of day, and especially not after dark. And they keep saying I could sleep on one of their beds and go in the morning. But those beds do hell to my back. And besides, I've lived in the city all my life, through a lot more dangerous times than this, if you can believe that. A stop was announced and Mara said, You should come back to my house. I'll cook you supper and give you something for saving me. Oh no, Tina said. You don't have to give me anything. Really, it's all right. It's something of my son's, and I don't have any use for it. I might as well give it to someone. Come on, humor me. Finally, Tina assented and they got off at Mara's stop. They were in the Upper West Side, near Midtown, in a pleasant old residential area. The sun was all the way down and the street lights had gone on. The warmth of the day hadn't quite faded away. Tina followed Mara as she walked down empty streets toward her home. The old woman walked at about half the speed Tina usually did, and it made Tina feel vulnerable to be moving so slowly. You remind me a lot of my son, she said as they walked. He was the kind of person who would just jump in and help people who were in trouble. I didn't do anything that great, Tina said. I'm sure there's tons of people in the city who would have done the same thing if they saw the situation. She thought about it. You might be right, but that doesn't make it any less special. No, you definitely remind me of my son. He was modest, kind, respectful, always helping people out. Everyone around here looked up to him, you know? Even the bad kids, the gang kids and the druggies. When he said something, they listened. If he said, you shouldn't be doing that, they would listen. This was the 40s, she continued. Things were really bad here then. Two-thirds of the city was unemployed. This street, right here, back then, all up and down the street, both sides of the street, you would have these cardboard boxes and tarps and other little shelters where homeless people would live. There might be a little soggy cardboard box, all held together with old rope, about as big as a mailbox, and there would be a whole family living in there. And then the street, there would be cars parked everywhere, even in front of the hydrants, and all those cars would have people sleeping in them. And those of us who could afford to live somewhere, we had to double up with four or five other families just to afford it. Oh, those were bad times, all right. And half the buildings in the city were empty, because the real estate prices were so high, nobody could afford to live in them. Now my son, he was a riot cop. Do you know what that is, hun? Just what I've read in history textbooks. There were a lot of riots, so the corpse had these private armies to stop the riots. There wasn't just a lot of riots. It was riots all the time. The riots they have today, where the National Guard comes in and shuts it down, those are nothing compared to the riots they had back then. The riots they have here today, that was what they would call a calm day back in the 40s. Today, people just want an excuse to break some windows and run off with some stuff. But back then it was just hate all the time. And my son, he didn't have any love for the corporations. But someone had to get a job. My son, he single-handedly supported 12 people. 12 people! None of them could get a job, including me, and he brought home the paycheck. They entered the door to a little old townhouse and went up the stairs. Now, my son was at one of the riots, down on Liberty, and what they did at those riots, they created a shield wall, penned in the rioters. Then they tear-gassed them and waited for them to be coughing and hurting so bad that they would give up just to get an eyewash and some pain pills. They walked into a hallway. There were only two doors, each with old-style transom windows above them. Mara got keys out of her pocket and unlocked a door. So he's on the front lines, holding the rioters back as part of the shield wall, and he sees this kid getting trampled to death. Not really a kid, mind you. A young man, about his age. Now, my son didn't know this boy. He was a complete stranger. But my son knew that if he didn't do anything, the boy was going to get killed. They entered the apartment. The old woman turned on some lights. The house was messy, but cozy. The apartment was cleverly arranged, packing a lot into a fairly small space. Mara put her coat on a peg by the door and went into the kitchen. Tina followed her, standing in the doorway to the kitchen. The old woman started to take little packages from the freezer and put them in a bowl. 
So my son, she continued, speaking over her shoulder, he says into his radio, Move forward! Move forward! But they don't listen to him, because he's not their commanding officer. So my son, he just steps forward, and not a person comes with him. She put a bowl into the microwave. A suggested cook time popped up on the LCD, and she hit OK. Now these riots, they were insane. None of the rioters were rational. They were desperate, because times were so tough, and it seemed like they were just getting worse, and it seemed like the government and corpse would rather let it get worse than give up any of their power. I had a friend, Becky, a Jewish gal. She said, I think this is Auschwitz. You know what that is, right? Yeah, Tina said. A death camp. She thought we were all going to be executed any day by the government and the corporations. That's how frightened people were back then. So you see, I don't blame those rioters. They were scared and angry and desperate. And when my son left that shield wall, well, that's what you don't do, isn't it? You don't leave the shield wall. That's the point of a shield wall. But my son couldn't just stand by and watch that boy get crushed. But the rioters grabbed my son and they beat him to death. Oh no, Tina said. I'm so sorry. And the boy he was trying to save? I don't know. My son's co-workers, they came to tell me my son had died. They couldn't be sure what happened to the other young man. A lot of people got killed in that riot. I'd like to think he lived because of my son and had a family. And maybe his kids are out there now, helping people, knowing they wouldn't be alive if someone hadn't helped their dad. That's so sad that he died like that, your son. It was the worst thing that ever happened to me. My wife, his other mom, died a few years before that. And I thought that was the worst thing that would ever happen to me, but it wasn't. At least she didn't have to live through our son dying. You were married to another woman? Was that even legal back then? Oh yeah, of course it was. It was legal almost everywhere in the U.S. It had been legal in New York since before I was born. Of course, there were still wackos that thought it was wrong. There still are today, Tina said bitterly. When I was a kid, Mara continued, my parents, and most of the other adults I knew, said there was nothing wrong with being gay. When I came out to my parents, they just said, Well, if you are, that's fine. If you're not, that's fine. We love you and know you'll be happy in life either way. And you weren't scared that some religious wackos would see you kissing another girl and beat you up? I guess it crossed my mind. But I grew up in the city, hun. And here, you have to watch where you go and keep an eye on your surroundings, gay or not. It took Tina a bit to find her next words. I guess that's a little disappointing. I guess I wanted to hear that it was so much worse then and so much better now. Mara shrugged. Worldwide, it's much better now than it was then, and it's still getting better. There's still battles for equality going on, probably will be for my lifetime and yours. But you gotta remember that New York was where gay kids moved when they couldn't find acceptance back home. It still is, Tina interjected. Okay, Mara said. And so, because of that, we were ahead of the curve as far as overcoming prejudice was concerned. New York was a good 20-30 years ahead of the rest of the country, and a good century ahead of some parts of the world. So it's been a lot of waiting for everyone else to catch up. But, you know, no matter how much we progress, I think it's always going to be hard to be different from the majority of people around you. It doesn't matter if it's your sexual orientation, or what you look like, where you were born, or even how you think. That'll always be hard. And some people will let that get to them, and they'll let it mess up their lives. Other people, because it's difficult, they'll just work harder. Maybe even become stronger people for it, and have happy, fulfilling lives. Is that what you did? Did you have a happy, fulfilling life? Mara pursed her lips and thought, a hand on her hip. I suppose I have, all things considered. Do you want tea? Or milk? Or water? Or orange juice? Orange juice is good, thank you, Tina said. Mara poured Tina a cup of orange juice and gave it to her. And then she pulled a dish out of the microwave. It was noodles and vegetables with some sort of cheese sauce. She put a spoon in the bowl and motioned for Tina to sit down on the couch in the living room. She gave Tina the bowl with a smile. 
While Tina ate, Mara went to a hall closet and started rooting around through piles of stuff. Here you go, Mara said, pulling a suit of black leather armor out of the closet. This isn't any of the modern stuff. Nothing made by nanobots or anything. It's just leather with a few metal plates inside. My son will wear it under whatever other armor the company that hired him gave him. Looks like it might fit you, though. Tina took the armor, not sure if she was doing the right thing. She held it up to her body, and it looked like it might fit. My son was never a big man, the woman said, but he always acted big. Never let anybody push him around. Just like you, I imagine. Well, go try it on. Mara showed Tina the bathroom. Tina tried on the armor. It was fairly loose on her, but she tightened the straps, and it seemed to stay on. The sleeves and legs were a few inches too long, which looked a bit silly, but wouldn't get in her way. The legs were wide enough that she could fit her boots on under them. Tina came out of the bathroom. There. Will you look at that? See, now you have to take it. Tina reluctantly agreed to take the armor. Tina let Mara talk her into having seconds. After Tina was done, Mara wished Tina a good night. Tina was tired. Tina would have said yes if the old woman had invited her to stay the night, but Mara didn't offer, and Tina wasn't going to ask. Tina headed back to the subway, wearing the armor under her clothes. The armor chafed, but at least she was warm. She figured she would get calluses where the armor chafed. Tina waited for someone to squeeze in with until she caught herself starting to fall asleep for brief moments. She decided not to wait any longer as she paid to get in. She rode to the Bowery. It was a short walk home. The room was dark, but Tina could see Joe and Manny asleep on the bed together. Tabitha was nowhere to be seen. Tina took off the armor and went to sleep on the couch.